This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Well, what's happening in front of me right now is one of the greatest, most viscerally awesome manifestations of raw, natural, physical power that you could ever hope to witness anywhere on Earth. Amazingly, in the right places, we can watch this incredible unleashing of natural power without the risk of, say, chasing around after a tornado or waiting somewhere on the shore for a tidal wave to come rolling in. Listen to this. That is the sound of a glacier calving into the tidal waters of Johns Hopkins Inlet in Glacier Bay National Park. It's a mass of ice about the size, I guess, of a city building suddenly breaking loose from the glacier's face, leaning out, shearing and shattering into colossal blocks that go careening down into the water. They set up an enormous wave that rolls out into the bay. I happen to be sitting about a hundred yards from the face of this glacier on a beautiful sunny afternoon at the cusp between summer and fall. It's warm, the warm sun on my back. And right straight in front of me is one of the biggest, coldest things you could ever find anywhere on Earth. Not only that, but on both sides of me is a mountain scene that would just explode your eyeballs. It is positively incredible. Just to my left, a small tributary glacier, small meaning absolutely gigantic, but smaller than the Johns Hopkins, pouring down over a lip of rock, almost vertically down, and fusing with the face of the Johns Hopkins Glacier just in front of me. Back in the background, white snow-covered mountains, covered with the earliest snowfalls. Up between them, a small hanging glacier, leaning out in the cusp between two mountain peaks, as if it's been stuck there by some kind of enormous hand. Incidentally, on the wall of the mountain beneath it, I can see just very tiny little white spot that is a mountain goat clinging to a little mountain ledge. Then if I turn my little tiny red kayak around, past the wheeling flock of kittiwakes and gulls just beneath the glacier's face, a rock wall of mountain that stretches on four miles up where the inlet turns and runs out into Glacier Bay. You hear the little clunking? That's my little kayak and paddle hitting against ice. I'm paddling through a mass of floating ice, little tiny icebergs, some of them just a couple of feet across, some 10 or 15 feet across, and some bigger bergs that are maybe 30 or 40 feet across. You sit here and you... Whoa, big chunk of ice careens off the glacier, down the face, picking up a mass of ice as it goes along. Good grief, I gotta tell you something 
This is one of the most exciting places, one of the most vivid and memorable moments of my entire life. My heart is definitely pounding. The bow of this little kayak is facing up toward the ice, and I'm just sort of hanging on here thinking, man, if that wall of ice lets go, I'm going to have one of the greatest experiences anybody could ever hope to have. So that's where I'm sitting on this beautiful, beautiful afternoon. As you travel up Glacier Bay, this spectacular, enormous bay, you would imagine that it looks much the same today as Glacier Bay has looked for eons. This bay is 65 miles long. It's an enormous complex of fjords, inlets, bays, coves, islands, and great mountain walls. You would imagine as you travel up this spectacular bay that it looks much the same today as it's looked for eons. But here is the most remarkable thing. 200 years ago, Glacier Bay's sprawling network of waterways did not exist at all. It was filled with a gigantic mass of solid glacial ice that faced out onto icy strait, up to 20 miles long the face of that long vanished glacier and 4,000 feet thick. Now by 1794, Captain George Vancouver picked his way through the floating ice that clogged icy strait and he found there a small bay about six miles deep at the present mouth of Glacier Bay. The ice had started melting back. Now listen to this. 85 years later, John Muir, the writer and naturalist, found that the ice had retreated 48 miles back, creating Glacier Bay. And by 1916, it was 65 miles from the mouth of Glacier Bay to the face of the Grand Pacific Glacier. This is the fastest known glacier retreat on such a scale anywhere in the world. Since 1916, the glaciers in this bay have advanced and retreated small distances, but overall, the bay has remained much more stable than it was during that dramatic century of glacial retreat. In 1925, President Calvin Coolidge declared Glacier Bay a national monument, and in 1980, it was redesignated Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. It's also part of an international biosphere reserve that includes the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park in this country and Canada's Kluwani National Park. It's the world's largest internationally protected area. Johns Hopkins Inlet is a very important place for animals like the harbor seals that come in here to give birth to their pups on the floating ice in here. It's a safe place. There's no predators around. It's also very rich. There's lots of shrimp and other food for seals down under this water. Actually, as I'm paddling along here, I can see there's a seal just in front of me. I'm paddling straight toward it and up. That sound you just heard, that's a seal that had come up to have a look at me and splashed down underwater. And when you come into this bay and have a look, as so many thousands of tourists do every summer on cruise ships and in small tour boats and in their own boats and in kayaks like mine, you would understand immediately the wisdom and the insight and the foresight of creating this incredible natural preserve. Well, Alaska has about 100,000 glaciers. Nobody knows the exact number. The size of these glaciers ranges from small patches of ice, like the one up in the mountains just off to my left, that's cupped in a small mountain basin, 
on up to the sprawling Malaspina and Bering glaciers, each one bigger than the state of Rhode Island. There are only about 650 glaciers in Alaska that have names. Glaciers cover about 29,000 square miles of Alaska, 5% of our total land area. Small icefall careening down the face of the Johns Hopkins Glacier. This compares, this 29,000 square miles of Alaskan glacier, compares, imagine this, with a total of about 200 square miles of glacier in the entire lower 48 states. Glaciers are found in Washington, Wyoming, Montana, Oregon, Colorado, California, Idaho, and Nevada. Most of our Alaskan glaciers are along the Pacific coast. The mountains of southeast Alaska, the Wrangell-St. Elias Mountains, the Chugach Range, along the Kenai Peninsula, and the Alaska Range. There are also glaciers on the volcanoes of the Katmai Peninsula, and on out about halfway the length of the Aleutian Chain. There are many small glaciers up far in the north on the Brooks Range Mountains, and a few on Kodiak Island, the mountains south of the Kuskokwim River, and the Seward Peninsula. Well, if this seems like a lot of glaciers, try now to imagine what Alaska was like during the Pleistocene Ice Age when as much as 50% of Alaska was covered by ice during the glacial maximum about 20,000 years ago. A massive ice sheet even stretched out across what is today the northern Gulf of Alaska. You could have walked all the way out beyond Middleton Island, which is about 60 miles or so out from Cordova today. There was so much water trapped in glaciers worldwide during that glacial maximum that sea level dropped about 300 feet. There was a huge shallow area around the Bering Strait that became dry land, and this is the famous Bering Land Bridge, which is a huge plain at that time, about a thousand miles wide at the maximum. This happened multiple times, and of course, people and animals came across, and that's how many species from Eurasia ended up here in North America, including the ancestors of that mountain goat up there on that steep slope just to my left. By about 10,000 years ago, Alaska glaciers covered about the same area they do today but there have been cold and warm periods since. The last cold period was called the Little Ice Age. It began about in the year 1350 and it ended right around 1800. That's exactly when Captain Vancouver saw a dent in the wall of ice that would eventually melt to become the place where we are today, Glacier Bay. All of the mass and power of glaciers comes from only one thing, snow. Glaciers form where it's cold enough so that more snow falls than melts away each year, or where snow falls all year round. That's why Alaska's glaciers are along the Pacific coast. It's not the coldest part of Alaska, it's the wettest part of Alaska. It's where the snow falls. Some mountains along the coast of Alaska get as much as 100 feet or more of snow every year. So glaciers are made where snow piles up year after year, decade after decade, millennium after millennium. When snow accumulates, its own weight makes those billions and billions of flakes settle and press down. 
the flakes get compacted and hardened. It's like making an enormous snowball. They turn into rounded crystals of ice. They're no longer snowflakes. As each year's winter snow add weight, this increases the pressure deeper down in the glacier, more and more pressure. It makes the ice crystals bigger and denser. It squeezes most of the air out. And that's why looking right straight ahead of me along the base of this incredibly huge Johns Hopkins Glacier, the ice is blue. That's where the great pressure has squeezed the air out as I look higher and higher up the face of the glacier. Toward the top, the color of the ice becomes more white, and that's because there's more air in that ice. Well, you know how much a block of ice from the store weighs, about a foot square. Well, now, Alaskan glaciers range from a few hundred to over 3,000 feet thick. So imagine the weight of the accumulated ice. Once the ice is about 60 feet thick, it starts to flow downhill. It's like caramel, or like silly putty. This vast frozen mass has plasticity. Some of the movement happens because meltwater caused by the immense pressure and by the summer's thawing luber... Whoa, did you hear that? That great shotgun crack, that was just one chunk of ice falling off the glacier in front of me. Where was I? The meltwater from the pressure and from the summer thawing lubricates the undersurface of the glacier so the glacier can slide over its broad rocky bed. Another reason that some of the movement happens in a glacier is because the ice itself deforms. The crystals warp and creep past each other. It's like having a deck of cards in your hands and sliding the cards one over the other. So downhill the ice can move. Now imagine a whole glacier like this Johns Hopkins Glacier flowing down its valley. It's essentially the same as the water in a river, but very, very slowly. The drag of the ice against rocks in the bed makes the ice flow slower along the bottom and along the sides. The fastest flow in a glacier is down the center, just the same as a river, where the water itself flows fastest down the center, slowest along the bottom and along the sides. The ice flows around rocks sticking up in the middle of a glacier. It rises up over mounds and tumbles like a slow motion waterfall over the steep precipice. Remember, I described just to my left, I have exactly that. A glacier starting about 300 feet above tidewater here, tumbling down over a lip of rock. What happens then? is that just like waves on tumbling water, the surface of the ice also becomes turbulent and it cracks, making thousands of huge, deep crevasses. Okay, now slow it all down in your mind and you see the glacier as a stupendous, inexorable, ever-flowing, prodigiously slow, incomprehensibly powerful river. And should this be surprising? After all, the glacier is nothing more or less than water wearing its brilliant white winter mask and fooling us into thinking it might be something else, something staid and conservative like the rocks of these mountains that it's nested in, the mountains where the glacier lives. Mountain glaciers like this one, the Johns Hopkins, typically move at four to seven feet per day. The speed varies a lot. The thicker the glacier, the steeper the slope, the faster it flows. It's often faster in summer 
when that meltwater is lubricating the glacier's bed. Well, there are lots of kinds of glaciers. They're the little ones perched up in the mountain swales and basins like snow in a cup that are called cirque glaciers. There's the classic glacier flowing down between mountain walls. It's called a valley glacier. Examples other than the Johns Hopkins, Portage Glacier near Anchorage, Mendenhall Glacier near Juneau, the Muldrow Glacier in Denali National Park, the Bering Glacier in the Chugach Mountains. The valley portion of that glacier is over a hundred miles long. Where valley glaciers empty out onto a flatter lowland and the ice spreads out like pancake batter, that's called a Piedmont Glacier. Example? the Malaspina Glacier on the Gulf of Alaska coast north of Yakutat. It's up to 40 miles wide along its front and it spills out almost 30 miles from the St. Elias Mountains. Huge glacier expanses that encompass many mountains and valleys are called ice fields like the Harding Ice Field on the Kenai Peninsula or the Juneau Ice Field near the capital city. Even bigger ones that completely cover all the mountain summits are called ice caps. There have been none of these in Alaska since the end of the last ice age. And the biggest of all are called continental glaciers. There's only two of them in the world today, Greenland and Antarctica. During the Pleistocene, a continental glacier covered most of North America. Where I grew up in southern Wisconsin, that area right around the capital city of Madison was once covered by 10,000 feet of that continental ice cap of the Pleistocene ice age. The clunking you here is my kayak. I'm getting facing back toward the glacier because if a huge ice fall should happen, I want to be facing into it and take it on the bow here. Well, as I look here at the front of the Johns Hopkins Glacier, paddling my little red kayak through this mass of floating ice, I see that it's not all white, it's not all blue, it's not all pure ice. It's full of dirt. It's very, very dark, brown, streaked. Whoa, another big chunk just piled off that glacier into the water. In a little bit, the wave from that is going to come rolling under me out here. What was I talking about? <laughs> oh, looking at the front of this glacier, there's all this dark stuff. There's all this dirt. Glaciers are not just made of ice. They're also liberally mixed with rocks and sediment and sand and dirt. It's like cookie dough that's full of chocolate chips and nuts. Rocks of every size tumbling in huge quantities from the mountainsides along either edge of the glacier, plucked from the glacier's bed by the ice pressure, and they become incorporated into the glacier itself. These things are called moraines. They extend deep within the glacier. At the end then, where the glacier is melting fastest, the entire surface can sometimes become completely covered with rocks and dirt, so the glacier actually looks black. And then all of this stuff accumulates in great piles of every shape. It's dumped off by the glacier itself, either at the lower end of the glacier like a huge berm or underneath the glacier revealed only when the glacier melts away. These hills and berms and ridges are also called glacial moraines. You might notice them at the end of most Alaskan valley glaciers today. The rocks inside a glacier are very powerful tools that scratch and grind and scour and erode and polish the glacier's bed. 
So you can often tell that way where the upper edge of a vanished glacier stood by the jagged walls above the smooth walls. For example, around Glacier Bay, you'll often see this at about 4,000 feet elevation, and it shows you how high the glaciers once extended. The great naturalist and writer John Muir, who spent a lot of time here in Glacier Bay, wrote this about the power of glaciers to shape land. He writes, the master builder chose for a tool not the thunder and lightning to rend and split asunder, not the stormy torrents nor the eroding rain, but the tender snowflake noiselessly falling through unnumbered generations. Another big chunk of the glacier falls off just as now the waves from the last piece that fell off are running smoothly underneath my kayak. Lovely feeling, the kayak rising and falling on these swells that were created in the most unusual way by a mass of ice falling into the water. Well, in Alaska, many of our glaciers are melting or receding due to the warming of the climate that began at the end of that little ice age about 200 years ago. This melting may be accelerating because of human-caused global warming. There's a great interest in the scientific community in looking at this and trying to learn if this is happening. The massive weight of glaciers actually makes the earth underneath it sink down, dozens or even hundreds of feet. Imagine that. When the glacier is gone, then that land that has been pushed down like a sponge very gradually springs back, like taking a rock off a spongy mattress. The land near the mouth of Glacier Bay today, right now, is rising about one and a half inches per year. That's called glacial rebound or isostatic rebound. To give you an idea of how much rebound can happen, Sullivan Island between Juneau and Haines in Lynn Canal has risen more than 18 feet in the past 250 years. That's just the earth springing back after the pressure of ice is released from it. Although many Alaskan glaciers are thinning or shrinking back up into their valleys, there are some that are getting thicker or advancing at their lower ends. It's not all one single thing. Now the Malaspina Glacier, that huge Piedmont Glacier that I mentioned a little while ago, its average thickness has decreased by about 60 feet in just the past 20 years. The enormous Muldrow Glacier, which is visible from the Isleson Visitor Center in Denali National Park, it surged ahead four miles just in 1956-57. At its peak, the Muldrow Glacier advanced 1,150 feet per day, about one foot per minute. Now the Muldrow has been alternately advancing and retreating for several hundred years. In recent years, the Hubbard Glacier has made the news all over the world. This is a 90 mile long valley glacier that ends in tidewater near Yakutat. In May 1986, the Muldrow came down and closed off the mouth of a huge fjord called Russell Fjord, creating instead an enormous lake. All of a sudden, Russell Fjord was Russell Lake. It even trapped inside that lake a school of porpoises. The water raised between May and October of that year 83 feet, drowning out the forest all the way around. And then that ice dam broke and released a humongous flood. The porpoises, incidentally, were freed when that flood happened. The whole thing was repeated in 2002, opened again, and it's bound to repeat itself again. 
Well, if you want to witness the most spectacular of all glacial events, if you want to fully comprehend the fact that glaciers are constantly moving, changing, living things that are given to moments of thunderous celebration, you got to come to a place like this, where a glacier meets the sea. Rather than gradually melting or splitting off chunks that topple onto dry land, many tidewater glaciers, like this Johns Hopkins Glacier, finish their work far more, <laughs> more enthusiastically by calving into the ocean beneath their faces. If the end of a glacier sits on top of its own moraine, so the debris pile supports the ice and minimizes the contact between ice and salt water, there's not going to be much calving. But if the glacier surges ahead so that its snout hangs out in deep water, this causes rapid melting and undercutting. That means that that unsupported ice easily cleaves and fractures and cuts loose. If it's a big glacier with a long exposed face like this one, and if the ice is flowing rapidly, it's the ideal place to see a lot of calving. John Muir described calving when he explored Glacier Bay with Tlingit people, who thought he was incidentally a nutball for wanting to approach the action so closely. He described calving icebergs like this. He said, the awful roaring, tons of water streaming like hair down the sides while they heave and plunge again and again before they settle in poise and sail away as blue islands free at last. Well, where there's a lot of calving, you're going to get a lot of icebergs. There must be a hundred thousand or a half a million of them floating around me right now. Some of these bergs are a vivid, fathomless blue color, probably recently calved ice from deep inside the glacier. Some are whitish color because of all that trapped air. Some are greenish black. They're from the bottom of the glacier where it's scraped over the bedrock and moraine. Some icebergs sink to the bottom. They're extremely dangerous because they can suddenly rise and burst up through the water surface. The locals here call them shooters. Those things are very dangerous when they come up like a house from underneath the water. Some of these chunks of ice are also fizzing or sizzling. They're releasing the air that's been trapped under great pressure for thousands of years. This stuff is called Bergy Seltzer, this constant fizziness coming off the ice. It's fossil air. It can be many thousands of years old. It's studied by scientists to track atmospheric changes. For example, scientists studying ice from a core in Greenland found that there is about 200 times more lead in the air today than there was during prehistoric times. Well, in many ways, glaciers like this calving, exploding, thundering, cleaving glacier just in front of me right now remind us that everything around us is constantly changing. And this includes the apparently solid, permanent, immutable Earth itself. In Glacier Bay and many other parts of Alaska, we can literally watch the glaciers move and see that the Earth is not immutable. We can see great valleys and mountainsides newly unveiled by the receding ice, the rocks bare and pale and soon to be covered with vegetation. Among the many beauties of places like Glacier Bay National Park is that they allow us to see that the earth itself is alive.
that the land around us is always being born that every day on this lovely earth of ours is both a continuity with the ancient past and a new beginning and speaking of new beginnings here goes another crashing chunk of ice off the glacier just ahead of me i'm going to point my kayak into this thing i'm going to keep drifting among these newborn icebergs and i'm going to wait for this glacier to calve again and again and again on this brilliant late summer alaska day i want to thank my good friends hank lenfer and kim hecox and jake jacoby for being here with me and for helping me to get out here thank you so much Thank you so much for being here with me. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited by Ken Fate, produced by Lisa Bush. Theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Foundation, Alaska Conservation Foundation, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, Sue Cohn, the Skaggs Foundation, and the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust. For more information about the show, visit us online at EncountersNorth.org.